0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
0: I'm very pleased to tell you that Kate Forsyth is back on Conversations today to tell you that we all need monsters. Not human monsters. We've got enough of those, thanks very much. But mythical monsters. Monsters of the imagination. We need them because human beings are always being assailed by vague disembodied terrors, and so we create frightening monsters like Darth Vader, Godzilla, zombies, vampires, werewolves, to embody these fears into a single form so that they can be killed. One of the oldest monsters in human mythology is the Minotaur, a half-bull, half-human creature that was said to lurk in the centre of a labyrinth on the island of Crete a monster that required seven young men and seven young women to be sacrificed to it every year. The legend of the Minotaur is the shadow story behind Kate Forsyth's novel called The Crimson Thread, which is set during World War II, and it draws in her own family history as well. Hi, Kate. Welcome
1: back. Thank you so much for having me, Richard.
0: I think you've been on this program more than any other person. There just seems to be no end to the stories you can extract from the strange realms of the human psyche and the subconscious and mythology. Do you ever expect to reach the bottom of that?
1: (laughs) I certainly hope not. The human psyche endlessly fascinates me and the history of human storytelling is so long and so vast and so endless It's fathomless and so hopefully my ideas will never end.
0: I think it's interesting too the way stories from your own life and your own family can be imposed onto these stories. So this story of yours really that we're going to talk about today starts with a boiling hot summer from your childhood when you were 14 years old. Tell me what was going on that summer.
1: It was the summer that my parents were getting divorced and my sister and my brother and I, we were all sent to stay with various different relatives while my parents had to do what they had to do and so I was sent down to Melbourne to stay with my father's parents and it was the first time I'd ever stayed with them on my own it was one of those sizzling hot summers it was too hot to do anything but lie and drink iced water and read now I always take stacks and stacks of books away with me because my biggest fear is being left with nothing to read I know you share this fear Richard indeed And I read all the books that I'd taken with me within the first three days. But my grandmother said, oh, you know, that's all right. Um, I've got all your father's and your aunt's and uncle's books stashed up somewhere. And so she rummaged around and she found this shelf full of old, old books. And I was set loose on them. And so that day I actually pulled down two books And the first one was a girl's school story. And it was set in Austria during the Second World War. And it's about how these schoolgirls defied the Gestapo and then had to escape through the Alps being hunted by the Nazis. It was a really thrilling sort of action adventure. And I was all animated and excited about it. And I told my grandparents about it that night at dinner. And my grandfather said, Well, actually, that's really like the story of your great uncle. And he began to tell me this astonishing story of struggle, bravery, heroism and escape. So my great uncle, his name was Jerry, which is the same name as my father. And when he was just 24 years old, he was sent to fight in Greece. And the Anzac soldiers struggled against the um, Germans, who were come, you know, came pouring down over the flanks of Mount Olympus and towards Athens.
0: Now, didn't the Australians think they were being sent to fight Italians to begin with, until the Germans invaded?
1: They were sent to fight the Italians, and then um, Mussolini made such a debacle of it that Hitler decided that he had to send, you know, the Wehrmacht in, and they came in like robots and just mm. drove everything before them. So my great uncle and the rest of his battalion retreated from Athens to Crete and they were there kind of resting and recovering for a couple of weeks when without any warning whatsoever, at least to the men on the ground. At dawn, in came these great planes, you know, and their bellies opened up and out dropped the paratroopers. About 7,000 of them just jumping out. It was the first airborne invasion in human history. Right, this
0: is the first major airborne paratrooper invasion, right.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, Crete, without any warning, without any provocation, without any justifiable reason, was invaded by the Germans. You know, these Australian and New Zealand troops who were exhausted and had little ammunition or weapons left, they fought side by side by the people of Crete. For 11 days, it was one of the most bitter and bloody battles of the Second World War, and the Germans lost more men in the first three days than they did in the entire three years of the war up until that point. Far
0: out. That's amazing.
1: (laughs) I know. So, you know, this is why they never had an airborne invasion again because it was so costly to the Germans. The Allies almost won, and if they had won, it would have been the first Allied Victory of the war. But just due to a piece of of bravado by a German general, they seized one airport. And so they were able to fly in all these reinforcements and weapons and food. And the Allied um, soldiers had nothing. You know, they were down to their last rations, they were starving, they were exhausted. So they had to retreat. And geography of Crete is incredible. The um, south coast faces Egypt and the north coast faces Europe. And there's this spine of magnificent, towering white mountains between them. And the Anzacs to there was only one road. And so there's this long centipede of soldiers trying to retreat, being harried on the ground and harried by the Luftwaffe from the air, Bombed, machine gunned, thousands were dying. They just abandoned everything and ran.
0: And your great-uncle Jerry was among that group M- of soldiers?
1: My great-uncle Jerry was on foot, his boots in ribbons, his his uniform in ribbons, starving, exhausted, wounded, and he had to walk all the way over these mountains with no respite, no rest. The Australian and New Zealand soldiers finally reached the south coast, but then the boats that were coming to try and rescue them and evacuate them had to come from Egypt, you know, to to get to Crete and then fill up the boat with the men and get it back before dawn came and the Luftwaffe could fly again was almost impossible. They managed to get off in three nights. They got 47,000 Allied soldiers off the island in an evacuation that was at least as desperate and dramatic as that of Dunkirk. But 7,000 Anzacs were abandoned, left behind, on the shores of Crete. Most of them were taken prisoner and they spent the rest of the war in a prisoner of war camp. But a few escaped or evaded capture and they were kept hidden by the people of Crete some of them for up to two years what under did, the German what ec- risk, occupation.
0: What risk did they put to themselves? These families in 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 hiding away these uh, uh, Anzac soldiers.
1: Terrible risk because um, the the reprisals were so savage. The Nazis were were furious that the people of Crete had risen up and fought against them. They were fighting with kitchen knives tied to broomsticks and rocks and antique, you know, hunting guns wow. and you know little little daggers, and they the reprisals against them were absolutely savage.
0: Yeah, the Germans were into conspicuous cruelty.
1: Yeah. Yes,
0: to sort of set a lesson, to, to, to get people to learn a lesson. Don't ever absolutely. come to the aid of these the enemy. You
1: know, so, you know um, the little village which had sheltered the Allied soldiers um, while they were waiting for the ships to come, all the men from the age of 12 to the oldest men were all shot and many of them were castrated before they were shot.
0: My God. And where was your great uncle in all of this?
1: So my great uncle was one of the last um, Australian soldiers to be got off off the island. He was on on one of the last boats and um, in actual fact, his commanding officer, when he heard that many of his men were being left behind on the shore, he dived overboard and swam back to Crete and was taken prisoner with them. It was an act of incredible um, courage and and support for his men. So my great uncle was lucky enough to make it back to Egypt, and he went on to fight in Egypt and Libya, and was a rat of Tobruk. Wow! Um, yeah, so, <laughs> so he, he had an amazing war. He, wow! He, he, yeah, that's right. You know, the the Australian soldiers were always always being sent to the most dangerous places. My book, however, I imagine what it would have been like if he had been left behind, and he had to be you know be kept hidden. Um, I have his life being saved by a young Greek woman who keeps him and one of his best mates hidden for two years, and they join the resistance together.
0: So he fought in Crete, and he fought as one of the rats of Tobruk, mm. and he was fighting the good fight against Nazi Germany. But how was he after the war?
1: My poor great uncle Jerry, he came back from the war with terrible post-traumatic stress syndrome and um and really struggled after the war and his his brother, who actually fought in Papua New Guinea, also came back with terrible PTSD and you know, my grandfather told me this story that just has really haunted my imagination ever since. My other great uncle, after the war, he was married, he had small children, but he was really struggling. And then one day he just went out to get a loaf of bread from the milk bar, which, which was on the corner of their street, maybe a minute's walk away. He went out to buy a loaf of bread and he never came home. He completely completely disappeared.
0: What, no message, no nothing?
1: No message, no trace of him ever found. No one ever knew what happened to him. He just disappeared off the face of the earth and whether he, he committed suicide and his body was never found, whether he ran away and assumed a new identity and lived another life elsewhere, whether he was murdered, we never knew. And that mystery, that feeling of of horror over his disappearance, I think it really drove home to me the terribly high cost of war to those who have to fight it.
0: So just bringing it back to the 14-year-old Kate, there's mm. this kind of traumatic thing going on in your family life. Your parents are splitting mm. up out of, out of sight from you while you're staying with mm. your grandparents in in Melbourne. You read this kind of dramatic book about a girl and people fleeing the Nazis over the Alps and then your grandfather mm. tells you this story about your family, about your great-uncle Jerry and another uncle who just disappeared one day. Mm -hmm. This must have affected you very profoundly, Kate.
1: Well, I certainly think that it did, um, you know, really hook into my imagination because I became completely fascinated by the World War II and read and read and read all the books I could find about it. And I also became really, really fascinated by Crete. And um, I think that might be because the very next day, after hearing this very dramatic story, the next book that I read out of that treasure trove my grandmother gave to me was the story of, you know, the heroes of the Greek myths. So story number 14, the same age that I was, was the story The Adventures of Theseus, which is, of course, um, set in Crete um, in the labyrinth with the Minotaur. And I think the fact that I heard this story about my you know, my great uncle, and then I read the story of the Minotaur in the Labyrinth, which is set in Crete. It really fixed that country in my mind as a place of danger and adventure and mystery and wonder.
0: I remember reading that story when I was 11, I think. It was in the library of the primary school I was at and I picked Mm -hmm. it out and read it. I've got very, very vague memories of it because that was more than a few years ago now, Kate, (laughs) uh, I'm afraid to say. But uh, let's just go through that story then, the story of the Minotaur and the, the labyrinth in Crete. Who, who is the Minotaur, was the Minotaur in this story? What is it?
1: So once upon a time, a very long time ago, the king of Crete was called Minos. He had this beautiful white bull that he thought was too fine to be sacrificed to the sea god Poseidon. And so he kept it for himself. And Poseidon was angry. No god likes to be ignored, and so Poseidon gave King Minos, his wife, an insatiable desire to mate with the white bull.
0: <laughs>
1: and you know her name. Those kinky Greeks.
0: She, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: she was unable to to overcome this monstrous desire, and so she inveiled upon Daedalus, the the inventor. Um, to make her a fake cow, and then she crawled inside its hide <laughs> and mated with the bull. Wow. In time, she gave birth to uh, a boy, a baby boy that was born with the body of a man and the head of a bull, and it was called Minos's Bull, Minotaur. And the king was so ashamed and angered by this monstrosity that he had Daedalus build him a labyrinth deep beneath the palace. It was to be so intricate, so complex, so winding and difficult that if you ever found your way into it, you would never find your way out again. And the Minotaur was locked in there in darkness, alone, it's very cruel, really. No wonder the poor Minotaur went completely mad. Now, King Minos' eldest son was killed while in Athens. And so Minos conquered Athens and then demanded that it send seven young men and seven young women to Crete to be sacrificed to feed the Minotaur. And so, for years, this kind of blood sacrifice was paid to, to this bull headed man. In time, Theseus, who was the prince of Athens, he decided it had to stop and so he went to Crete as part of the sacrifice, um, determined to, to fight and overcome the Minotaur.
0: So he was going to be one of the seven sacrificed he, young men.
1: He was going to be one of the seven young men. Now Minos had a daughter whose name was Ariadne, the princess of Crete and the story goes, she fell madly in love with Theseus at first sight And so she told him the secret of, of, of the labyrinth. She gave him a ball of thread and she held one end of it and he took the other with him and he went in and penetrated through that labyrinthine maze, found the Minotaur, fought him and killed him. And then he followed the thread out, Ariadne's thread, out of the labyrinth and then they escaped Crete together.
0: So he uses that thread to find his way out of the labyrinth back to her.
1: Yes, Ariadne's thread, which is she has given to him.
0: She's the sister, though, of the Minotaur, isn't she? Yeah,
1: she's the half-sister of the Minotaur. And people conveniently forget that fact when they retell the stories of the adventures of,
0: of Theseus. And what happens now after... He finds he's, he's killed the Minotaur and he finds his way back to Ariadne. He, surely he's grateful and he's madly he is in love. Surely he's
1: grateful and surely he's madly in love with her. But no, these are the Greek myths that we're talking about. There always has to be a tragic and bloody ending. In some versions of the tales, he abandons her after he's had his, his way with her. He leaves her sleeping and then sails off. What a and, cad! And leaves her there. In some versions of the story, she's so distraught at his betrayal of her that she hangs herself. In other versions of the story, she is found by the Greek god Dionysus.
0: He's like the god of wine, isn't he?
1: The god of wine and of dance and of ecstasy and madness and epiphany.
0: Like the god of rock and roll, in other words.
1: The god of rock and roll. Because Jim
0: Morrison from The Doors modelled himself on Dionysus, exactly. didn't he? Yeah, yes, right. So, so wow. So she marries a rock star in the heaven, essentially. Yes,
1: and he, he, he takes her crown of seven stars and he flings it up into the night sky and um, so that anyone who is lost can then navigate their way home.
0: Was that in the version you read as as a 14-year-old girl?
1: No, absolutely not in the in the version that I read which had been rewritten for children. Um she dies. She she suddenly sickens and dies and then Theseus is heartbroken and has to go home without her. So Roger Lancelin Green, the British writer who who rewrote this story, he kind of softened down the ending for the young.
0: So he felt a need to preserve Theseus's image as a gallant, a gallant hero, and but that's not the story though. That doesn't no. sound right. It's a much more satisfying ending to have Ariadne's crown thrown as this as navigational. I navigational so stars. agree.
1: I I much prefer the original ending, and of course, I much prefer the fact that in the original stories, Ariadne is a far more active figure. She is not motivated to to find someone to kill her brother because she loves that man. She's motivated because she knows that this is an act of hatred and ugliness and that her half-brother is suffering in the labyrinth and also that every year or every seven years or every nine years, depending on the tale, 14 young people sacrifices their lives to feed him. It's a terrible thing.
0: So once again, this is what you often do, Kate. You you like to scrape away the kind of bits of rubbish that have been imposed on a very old story from the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. The mm. uh, the that need to make things nice.
1: I like to go back to the source. I like to go back to the oldest versions I can find. I like to read all the different versions and then see if I can find the shape of the story within. And then what I'm interested in is I'm interested in, in stories that carry encoded messages of of wisdom, how we can learn to live better. When you drain the darkness out of stories, you drain a lot of the power out of them. Stories have an uh, important function to help us live better. And so when they're just pretty tales, dressed up and, and romanticised, no, you know, they don't have any other purpose except to entertain. When you retain these ancient, shadowy messages within them, then they have real power to make us, you know, to change our lives and to help us transform ourselves.
0: They have to wound us then.
1: They have to wound us.
0: And then we reflect on them and remember them forever. And you've remembered this story since you were fourteen.
1: Exactly right. And it was the it it was the difficulty of the story. It was the struggle to escape. It was the attempt to try and save this small island from this uh injustice and cruelty that was that was being launched upon them. It was such a mighty struggle. That's what drew me to it. It with, without the blood and without the danger and without the death and the risk it wouldn't have been anywhere near as good a story.
0: Now, this is a very old story, this one, very old. It, how old is it though? How far back do we need to look to find the origins of this story?
1: Look, you know, the the culture out of which it arose is at least 5,000 years old um, and the story could well be older than that.
0: This comes from Minoan Crete, doesn't it? Yeah. And I understand that's the oldest European civilization I think the Egyptians and Sumerians and Babylons predate this and several Chinese ones as well but as far as Europe goes it's the oldest of the the first civilization to arise in
1: Europe yes, isn't it's it? called the cradle of Western civilization it had the oldest known road in Europe, the oldest known palace in Europe, the oldest throne in Europe, the oldest art the oldest music it's incredibly a magical powerful place.
0: I sort of looked into Norman Davies' wonderful History of Europe book, and and he describes the Minoans like this. He says, Supported by the trade of their far-ranging ships, the Minoans lived a life of comfort, of ritual, and of administrative order. Their quarters were supplied with running water, with drainage, and with flushed sewers. Their walls were covered with frescoes, griffins, dolphins, and flowers, painted onto luminous settings of deep blue and gold. They were so confident of their power and prosperity that none of their palaces was fortified. Now, the Minotaur, the bull, like the bull of Minotaur, that's like Taurus, isn't it? Right, yeah. Yes. So how important was the bull to Minoan culture in ancient Crete?
1: Oh, look, it was incredibly important. Um th- When the palace at Knossos in Crete was first excavated, they found many, many representations of the bull in art and the most exciting and surprising was this tiny figure of a bull leaper. Um, So this is uh, a kind of acrobat that would run towards a charging bull, (laughs) seize hold of the horns (laughs) horns, and then backflip (laughs) over its back.
0: Well, that's a bad, that's, you know, that would work a couple of times, I reckon, but <laughs> at best, Kate, not for too long, though, would oh, it? Oh, well, you know, mm.
1: uh, you know apparently they, that they grew to be very, very adept, but I imagine quite a few young people lost their lives. And, of course, the theory is, is that perhaps the story of the minotaur, the bull-headed man that has to be fought and defeated, has its roots in this bull cult. Of ancient Minoan culture, they had frescoes of bulls on their on their um, walls, and they had um, uh, you know beautiful uh, jugs and you know statues of um, of bulls, and also I have to say of um, a snake goddess. Um, a goddess with her arms upheld and snakes writhing up her arms. It's believed that the Minoans might have been matriarchal, may have worshipped a mother goddess and that the priestesses there were in, in, immensely powerful and influential.
0: Now, Minoan civilization this predates classical Greece, this predates the Greece of Pericles yeah. and, and all of that. What do we know about what brought it down? It was some kind of natural disaster, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it absolutely was. And this goes back to the bull cult, this worship of the bull, because, of course, the bull was an emblem of Poseidon, who we think of as being, you know, the god of the sea. Yeah,
0: he's pretty aquatic, isn't he?
1: Yeah, but he's also the god of earthquakes, and um, it's believed that um, the bull, the sound of an earthquake rumbling underneath the earth, sounds like a bull roaring. And so perhaps the bull cult was all about the people of Crete trying to propiate the god of earthquakes because Crete lies right on our geological fault.
0: So then the Minotaur sort of embodies... The terror of earthquakes.
1: The terror of earthquakes. And the bull is seen as a symbol of the life force at its most potent, which means, of course, unbridled sexuality, desire, human desire, but it's also got to do with some of the crueler aspects of, you know, human desire, um, violence and bloodlust and and the desire to defeat others. Knossos actually fell. There was a, a volcano in Santorini, which is not very far away from Crete at all across the seas and that set up a, a, a giant earthquake in Crete and so, you know, the Minoan civilization was brought to its knees eventually by an earthquake.
0: So you can build this magnificent palace. Mm-hmm. You can fill it with art and working toilets and what have you and all these mm-hmm. sorts of things would be the first in your, in your part of the world to do so. And you don't even fortify the walls, you're that secure, but it means nothing when the whole earth shakes and brings your palace down. And
1: then your palace lies buried under earth and the Mm. wildflowers grow upon it and it can lie there for thousands and thousands of years until one day it is discovered again. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: The word monster itself... Where did we get that from, Kate?
1: So the the source word for monster is the ancient Latin word monere, which means to warn. And that developed into monstrum, which means an evil omen. Now, other words that come from the same ancient root are things like admonish, to warn someone not to do something. Monitor, someone who watches and warns. Premonition, to have pre warning of something that might happen, and to summon, which means to call secretly.
0: So the monster then isn't just a sort of hideous... No. ...dangerous beast. It's, it's, it's a warning in itself. What, do, what does the Minotaur and, and monsters in general, what, are they, what do you think they... What do they do for us?
1: Um, one of the reasons why I love myths and fairy tales is because everything works on on two levels. So on on one level, they are terrifying beasts that need to be fought, and it's a pleasurable thing to see that happen. But on a deeper, more psychological level, the monsters of our myths and our fairy tales, and indeed of all popular culture, they act as metaphors for us to. We project into them our our fears and our, our desires. They are kind of shadow self to us humans. Um, so when we encounter a monster in a, a in a story or a film, what happens is we follow the hero as he or she battle that monster and overcome it. And the triumph at the end is the triumph of the human spirit over its most dark, most difficult, most repressed, most um, dangerous aspects of the human psyche. And so when we battle that monster, we're actually doing battle with our darker selves.
0: For research for this conversation, I was considering flicking through the Golden Bough, but instead I re-watched Alien, the Ridley Scott classic. (laughs) And I was trying trying to pay attention to what I was feeling about watching Alien, watching, first of all, you know, the monster first of all, it's, it, the thing that gives birth or whatever it is sort of grapples onto the guy's face to suffocate it. Then he bursts out of the guy's stomach and then becomes this giant terrifying thing with double sets of jaws and And it's still thrilling to watch that and, and chilling at the same time. We can never quite see it in its entirety throughout that film. They, they're smart enough to never mm. see the whole monster standing there alone throughout it because special effects were in their infancy and in any case you don't want to do you, you mm. want to see it and you don't want to see it at the same no,
1: time no because it arises out of the shadowy realm of our un, unconscious and we can never quite see we can never quite recognize our monsters it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I think that um, our kind of modern preoccupation with vampires and werewolves and, and zombies, particularly zombies, I mm. think, a kind of an expression of our fear of pathogens and pandemics and this idea that, you know, we can catch some kind of virus that will make us somehow less human. You know, these, they're always carriers of human unease. And that's what makes them so fascinating.
0: Another great movie is uh, Forbidden Planet, where they're battling monsters from the Id. And spoiler alert, boys and girls, but the monsters from the Id are, are from the, the the heroes themselves. And that's it, isn't it? Like, so you're saying that we want to do we want to create monsters to embody to create a, son of a, a kind of a, 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 a an embodiment for all our vague fears of earthquakes or, mm. or bad harvests or death, know, death or the neighbours up the road or what have you or exactly. or crime or whatever and 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 or the apocalypse and we, it gives us a, a definite shape we can then latch onto. Is that what's going on there?
1: I think that it's stand in for the, you know that part of ourselves which troubles our dreams and troubles us. Um, I think that monsters, you know, I think that it's a human need, a deep psychological need to, you know, when we walk the labyrinth, we're going I- I- into ourselves, into the shadowy realm of dreams and desires and all that has been repressed or, and forgotten. And what we're really searching for is some kind of triumph of the human spirit, a kind of... Transcendental uh, journey to wisdom and self-integration. And that, I think, is what's so fascinating about them.
0: Integration. Don't we need to eat the monster if we're going to integrate ourselves with it rather than kill it?
1: Um, It really depends on the myth. I think it's got more to do with facing it and seeing it and naming it and knowing it.
0: So like terrors then the the kind of terrors that regularly besiege us in the wee hours of the morning they're a bit like ghosts aren't they they're disembodied they're vague they have no borders but a monster well that that's coherent it's got it seems to it's got a kind of flesh and blood to it even if it's a kind of a very misshapen one
1: and i think what they do is their monsters also have a function in where they warn us what perhaps we could be travelling towards if we don't stop and take stock and understand ourselves i think monsters warn us where we're going wrong. And so when we invent or construct a monster for our times, it's a warning. So in the Crimson Thread, you know, my Minotaur is not, of course, a bullheaded monster hidden in a labyrinth. It's a metaphorical Minotaur. And for me, it's war. War, which is, I think, the darkest expression of human greed and lust for power and cruelty and and disregard for the lives of ordinary people, when you know the characters in my book are struggling to overcome war and all of its cruelties. And so that's what the Minotaur means in my book.
0: Have you given the Minotaur human form? This it, absolutely it, it, yeah, always. A
1: character. Yeah. um, I would say that there is is um a couple of different characters that carry the bullhead of the Minotaur. The half-brother. The half-brother, of course. um so my heroine elenka, her half-brother is a, a collaborator and a traitor. and in the end, she has to choose between her her brother and the man that she loves between her brother and her country, between her brother and right.
0: When you were talking about the origin of the Minotaur uh, before, you were saying that he, he comes about from this kind of illicit, liaison between the queen and the bull, right? Mm, that's the gold, right. The, the, the white bull. So the, the Minotaur is born as this misbegotten thing but only becomes a monster when he's treated cruelly. It reminds me of Frankenstein's monster.
1: He reminds me of Frankenstein's monster as well. I actually reread Frankenstein while I was writing The Crimson Thread because I think um, it is one, you know, one of the reasons why that that book, which was written by a young woman, has so seized the popular cultural imagination is because it embodies our fears of what we humans are creating with our science and our technology and our fiddling with how things are meant to be. Um, You know, Frankenstein continues to endure when many other monsters have been been forgotten.
0: The film is a classic too from the 1930s. Mm. That moment when you first glimpsed the monster, it's Boris Karloff, and he's got his back. He comes backwards through a door, mm. and then he slowly turns around. And there's not a bit of soundtrack behind it. And then there's this sudden jarring close-up of his face, and he's sucking his cheeks in, and he's slightly cross-eyed. And, and it's it's really chilling to watch, even today. Mm. It's really very unsettling. But the director wants you to really look at this thing for the first time. Really look at it. It's been concealed, but when you look at it, you're filled with horror. And mm. then, then. He asks you to feel compassion for it.
1: Exactly. I think that's um a really important part of this kind of monster myth that we keep retelling and retelling in, you know, human narratives from all over the world. I think that um in the miniature story, what is clear is that even though he was a bull-headed boy, he didn't need to to grow into this monster. It's because he was banished from all human contact. He was fed on the blood and flesh of other humans. He was trapped within this baffling labyrinthine maze which is is like a, a stony wilderness he's blinded he's in darkness cannot see the light. And so his bewilderment and rage, I think, is palpable. What's the sacrifice?
0: Seven young men, seven young women, maidens, they have to be yeah. virgins, of course, as symbols of purity or something. Mm. Is he demanding that or is that just given to him? I wonder what that means. What's the significance of that?
1: You know, I i think it links back to the possibility that there were blood sacrifices at Canossus.
0: It's a bit like Moloch, the god that you have to sacrifice children to, that mm. god, isn't it? It's a bit like that. Do you think there's something in that?
1: The, the Minoan civilization was a peaceful one, but the sacrifice of animals was deeply embedded into ancient civilizations. For me, I think it's a metaphor again. What does it mean? It means that human lives are being needlessly wasted.
0: Oh yeah, right. I see now. Mm. So right. So the metaphors, the 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 the, minor, the minotaur is a crisis, yeah. and if you don't address the crisis. You're going to keep wasting lives senselessly, feeding the lives of innocents into the more of this thing.
1: Exactly. Right. you know, um, And I love that word, crisis, because that's how I think of it as well. Um, myths t- and, and fairy tales, which are there, you know, the, the other face of the same coin, they deal with the great h- human crises of life, birth, sexual awakening, death and rebirth. These are the great mythical themes and the great imponderables, the great unknowns of human life.
0: Then there's the labyrinth. You described that as a stony wilderness, which is a wonderful phrase. Mm. I think of it more like as an anxiety dream. I think Mm. labyrinths are like anxiety dreams when you just get fixated in this dream about some problem you just can't solve and no one's helping you and you just can't find your way out. What do you you think about that, Kate?
1: Oh, I so agree. And, you know, I recognise that dream. I've had many of those dreams. Where are you in
0: your anxiety dreams, if you (laughs) don't mind me asking?
1: Sometimes I'm on my way to a literary festival and I can't get there (laughs) and I, you know, there's a thousand people, shadowy people, waiting in a vast auditorium for me, and I can't find my wallet, and I can't find my passport. I miss the bus, and oh, you and know, I don't want to be here anyway. And it's
0: like <laughs> no, but you need to do this now. And I, not, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, I um, anything to do with the subconscious has that that feel of being like a fever dream, and when dreams are really, really vivid and very, very visceral, you don't know that it's a dream. And so you're so relieved when you wake up. And I think that the labyrinth has that same feeling that once you were trapped in there, you could never find your way out again. And that, of course, is why Ariane's thread has gone on to be such a, a powerful metaphor. So, you know, Freud said that the human psyche is like the labyrinth and that psychoanalysts were... Like Ariadne, and they gave you the thread to lead you out of the bewildering maze of your own psyche. Yeah,
0: the the whole idea of the thread of Ariadne is a really powerful idea in uh, the Renaissance art of alchemy, well, medieval Mm. and Renaissance art of alchemy. The idea was that there was always you, you were always trying to make yourself a better person by through alchemy the spiritual process of alchemy by uh, reconciling you with your opposite Mm -hmm. all the time. You had this kind of marriage with male and female, sun and moon and and, and the like. But to get there, you had to follow, you had to accept the golden thread of Ariadne out of the labyrinth. And that meant being humble. So Theseus can't do it alone. He can't find his way in and out of the labyrinth, kill the monster and get back out again without an act of grace, which is the thread given to him by Ariadne. Without that, He's trapped in there, and he never gets out of the labyrinth.
1: That's absolutely right. And you know, so what I've done in you know in my own work with with this very ancient myth is to recenter it on on Ariadne, um, and in 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 my book. That, that, you know, that's my heroine, Alenka, who's a young Greek girl and who, you know, joins the resistance and is, is fighting to overcome the Minotaur of war, you know, the Nazis and their occupation of her home. Um, and, you know, I've tried very much to make sure that even though this is a story about war and resistance and battles, it's also a story about young one young woman's struggle to be, you know, to help... And save her homeland and her family, and to you know find that kind of golden thread that you were just talking about. In the original myth um, myths, the thread was always blood red. Um, and that's a really important color in Greek in Greek folklore. We might say you know we touch wood um, to avert bad luck. In the Greek culture, you touch red. And so that you know that blood red thread is you know deeply tied into Greek superstitions and Greek folklore.
0: What are we supposed to think of Theseus, the hero here? I don't know if we see heroes the same way we used to i I, I don't know Theseus isn't he, he's the guy that has finds the courage he's interesting when he finds the courage to go into the labyrinth and kill kill the minotaur, but he doesn't really uh, he't does, he really does he really interest us beyond that though What do you think?
1: Um, I think that, like most heroes, Theseus was very much of his time. He, you know, his, his story is deeply embedded in, in the Bronze Age culture, which was a, a, a violent um, one where there were a lot of battles and, and wars. Um, and his exploits are always exaggerated, almost for humorous effect as well. You know, some of the things that he that he does are superhuman, um and I don't know that we're necessarily ever meant to like him though. I think that we're meant to see him as being this larger than life character that that battles and and makes love to women. He's kind of like a James Bond of the Bond's age, you could say. Um,
0: Interesting, but not very likable.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But then he sort of makes, doesn't he? Kind of screw up at the end really badly.
1: Um, well, he does, of course. Um, he but for,
0: for a start, he's not grateful to Ariadne that he's no, given him. No,
1: he abandons Ariadne and then he ends up marrying her sister and then, a
0: dirty dog.
1: Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> and then he <laughs> has a, a long and very hot affair with the queen of the Amazons, and has a son by her. And then, when that son is grown, his wife takes revenge upon Theseus by accusing his son of raping her, and so he has his um, son killed. And then, only then finds out that he's been tricked, and he has you know murdered his own son. On a lie. So, but, you know, the Greek myths are fascinating because they are so dark and so bloody and so full of um, terrible injustices and terrible revenges.
0: They never tie anything up at the end entirely. Like something's resolved, but not everything. So you went to Knossos. I did. You went there. went there a few times, didn't you, pre-COVID? You were lucky enough to get over there before COVID struck. What does that area look like today? Is the palace still standing
1: at Knossos? Oh, look, you know, Knossos is just one of those places that just seems, incre- you know, incredibly ancient. Um, it is still standing. Um, so Arthur Evans, who was a British archaeologist who excavated um, Knossos at his own cost um, and and built the Villa Ariadne, which is at the heart of my novel, um, he, he restored, and I'm putting, um, you know, S-
0: scare quotes around it, yes. Yeah,
1: because you know, modern day archaeologists are horrified by what he did. He rebuilt the walls with steel and concrete and painted them so they looked like they might have looked back then oh dear. but maybe not. Yeah. And he was you know, he he restored all the frescoes, but um the, the artists he paid to restore them got it all wrong. And oh no. uh, but <laughs> that said mm. Um, one of the reasons why Knossos is one of the most um, popular archaeological sites in the world is because you can see how it might once have been, and if without Sir Arthur Evans, it would just be a tumble of stones in a field. And now it's a palace, and you can wander around it, and it is it is really labyrinthine. You know, you you get a sense of this vast network of you know, passages and rooms and, you know, high-rise buildings. It was amazing when you think how old it is.
0: When I go to places like that, like the Imperial Forum in Rome, I like to squint a bit and try and imagine myself as just someone wandering through however many thousands of years ago. Do you do that?
1: Oh, Richard, of course. <laughs> How could you even ask me such a question? You risk
0: banging into a pillar. At
1: yes, times, but, that's right. I, hmm. I actually really, it's one of my favorite things to do, is to try and cast myself back in time, to actually slip through the fissures of the space-time continuum, and be back in time and imagine what it might have been like and what it smelled like and felt like and sounded like. You know, I have a very active imagination, Richard, which I'm sure does not surprise you. So um, I I get a very clear idea of what it, it must have been like.
0: And when you're wandering through that restored palace and you look at, what do those frescoes look like today?
1: Oh, they're so vivid and so alive and so beautiful. And it, you know, they were very peaceful people. And so you know, it's all of flowers and, and dolphins frolicking among sea urchins and fish. And, there's you know, the throne room is absolutely exquisite. It's got these uh, kind of griffins, which are you know, lions with eagle heads um, amongst a field of lilies. And they have the most fantastic throne I've ever seen. It's It's carved out of alabaster and it's all kind of carved... It looks like something out of, out of a, a Narnia movie or something. And it's, Who made it's it? Like, was
0: that Sir Arthur Evans or was that the, it's it not, can't be the original no, one, No,
1: it? it's the original one because it's actually built into the wall and so it's still there. You can mm. still see it. It's 5,000 years old. You're not allowed to sit on it anymore. Once upon a time people, tourists used to go there and actually sit on it. What's hilarious though is that Sir Arthur Evans imagined it was you know that they had a king sitting in it, but modern-day archaeologists believe that it was a queen because the seat has be- has been carved for the greater spread of a woman's buttocks <laughs> than a man's. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So like you say, the, the Villa Ariadne, which was that great house that Sir Arthur Evans, yeah. the archaeologist, built nearby, That's that sort of features in in your book as well. What's that like to visit today?
1: Oh, I was so lucky because it's um, it's actually owned by the British School of Archaeology and the Greek um, um, archaeologists as well. So it's not open to the public but I got a private tour and um, it's, you know, the, it was the crux of... World War II, You know that was where the German, um, you know, commanders of the island lived, and it was turned into this compound with barbed wire and guard dogs and spotlights and everything else. And um, you know, it it was where the last s- surrender of the Germans in Europe was signed in the Valley. Ari- it, it, I'm sorry, in the Villa Ariadne in 1945. So after the death of Hitler. They finally gave up the island. They clung to it to the very last minute. So it, this this house, which is like a English lord's house propped down in the middle of the Greek countryside, it's seen so much history. It's just incredible.
0: And when you stand on the balcony and you look out, what does it look like?
1: You can see out over the ruins, which are laid out below you as if they were a labyrinth. It, you know from above which is i i think why he built his house on the hill he can look out and he can see that maze like construction below him and there's a huge set of um, of horns which are a reproduction of the original ones that were there of bull horns and you can see the mountain of juctus which is where zeus is meant to lie sleeping and will one day awake again it's incredible
0: the idea that the palace right. Is the labyrinth is a really wild idea. So then, the Minotaur in the middle of it is the king, perhaps, and the king needs to be slain. I don't know th- Quite these things. Possibly. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's completely fascinating. Of course, what is a palace but a labyrinth? No one, I mean, everyone complains when they're in a palace; they can't find their way around. It's full of hidden passageways and long Se- hallways and secret, secret doors, secret doors and, and secret all that.
1: passages and hidden cellars. Yes, I sometimes wonder whether the labyrinth really was the palace and whether King Minos was the Minotaur. And perhaps he used to take part in sacrifices. Um, he used to wear a bull mask because some of the masks that they found there, you know, some of the bull masks, could have had uh, a ritualistic function. We will, we, we will never know.
0: Yeah, but that does add up, doesn't it? It's, mm. uh, it's a kind of a lovely thesis. What about Arthur Evans? What about him? What happened when he came back to his his beloved Villa Ariadne after the Second World War?
1: Well, he, he was never able to come back because by that time he was a very, very old man and he had given over the, um, the villa, um, you know, to the British School of Archaeology. He was in London during the London Blitz and he heard of the fall of Crete, which happened in May 1941. This is where my novel starts. And he was so distressed about the idea that Crete had fallen under the Nazi jack boot. He went up to London and he went and tried to get news of all of his friends and his servants and his workmen. And when he heard that the Viliariadne was occupied and was now the home of the German divisional commander, he, he suffered a heart attack and, and just fell down and he died only a few weeks later. So, you know, he, he, he literally died of grief the idea that Crete had fallen to the Nazis
0: myths have a lot of gender embedded in them. And monsters can be killed two ways, can't they? Like there's swords and there's cups. Men have the mm. swords, women have the cups typically, normally that's you make of that what you will. Mm. The men the, the man will go in and slay the the minotaur, the monster with a sword. But in, there's also the movies or the fairy tales and folktales where women defeat the monster with their compassion, the cup of their compassion, like the, the beast in Beauty and the Beast. What do you make of all that, Kate?
1: Yeah, you, you know, you are absolutely right. Um, one of the reasons why fairy tales tend to not be studied in the same way that myths do is because myths tend to be androcentric, i.e. male-based, you mean, Male-based, yeah. mm. you know, told by men about men. And fairy tales are often gynocentric, you know, female-centric, which means that they have, you know, women's desires, women's needs and women's journeys at their heart and they're told by women to women. Now, whatever fairy tale arose around Ariadne and the labyrinth is long gone because women were very rarely literate right up until the modern day. But can I tell you that in myths, it's usually the role of the hero to go and slay the monster, and so triumph. In fairy tales, the role of the women is nearly always to journey and to to make whole what has been broken. To mend. Or, to mend or to heal what has been wounded. And so we have at the heart of both the myth of the Minotaur and my own novel, this idea of a wounded land, a land that has been ravished by war and by the the battles of men. And it is the role of the woman to help heal the land. And so after the Germans finally surrendered in in May 1945, 4 years after they invaded and they finally left, the Greek people were left behind to try and repair their ravaged lands. of all the infrastructure had been destroyed. The the, the Germans blew up bridges and harbours and ports and electrical stations as they retreated, trying to do as much damage as they could. And so the job of the Greek people was then to repair what had been broken, to heal what had been wounded. And that, I think, is the true message of that myth.
0: How wonderful to speak with you again. As always, Kate, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. been listening to a
0: podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash
1: conversations.